Acts. We're going to be in chapter 1 this morning, looking at the first 11 verses. It's sort of near the end of the Bible in the New Testament. So, you know, we finished up last week in Matthew, and we ended, you'll remember, with this fantastic picture. We had Jesus there up on the mountain. We had about 500 of his followers gathered around as he called us all to be you know, into this great co-mission with him. Right? He promised at the very end in Matthew 28 verse 16, he said, lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. And then to be continued. Right? Remember those words, the, those dreaded words that would sort of haunt the screen as you would watch through a TV series season and then you had to wait all summer long, remember, before you actually could find out what happens next. Now, of course, I'm speaking only to the people who we can still remember before you could just binge the whole next season, right, after a trip to the fridge, but we had to wait, Now this morning, we're going to dive right into the book of Acts, and in the book of Acts, we're going to see that the story continues. And we're going to watch in our text today the way that the stage is set for one of what is the most exciting accounts in all of human history, really during which was one of the most unique periods in all of human history. In writing about the book of Acts, uh, New Testament scholar J.B. Phillips said this. He said, in no comparable period of human history has any small book of ordinary people so moved the world that their enemies could say with tears of rage in their eyes that these men have turned the world upside down. And the book of Acts is this exciting account as the sovereign God uses the most unlikely instruments and overcomes the most overwhelming obstacles and employs the most unconventional methods and achieves the most remarkable results. And we're going to see the secret behind all of that in just the opening verses this morning of chapter 1. So let's pray and just ask the Lord that he would bless our time in his word today. Father, we thank you so much for this opportunity, Lord, to gather together as your people, Lord, to worship you through our singing, Lord, to worship you through our giving, to worship you in our devotion to you, Lord, and to learn more of you in our study of the word. So we pray, Lord, that you'd be our teacher today, uh, that the teaching ministry of your spirit would be manifest here this morning as you speak to each one of us individually and speak to us, Lord, we pray, as your church corporately. And we thank you and we praise you in Jesus' name. And all God's people said, Amen. Amen. So the book of Acts, as we said, picks up right where the Gospels leave off. And in fact, it was written by Luke as sort of a second volume to that very same Gospel account that bears his name. And so he begins by referring back to that writing. Look at verses 1 through 3. He says that the former account I made, O Theophilus, of all that Jesus began both to do and to teach until the day in which he was taken up, after he, through the Holy Spirit, had given commandments to the apostles whom he had chosen, to whom he also presented himself alive after his suffering 
by many infallible proofs, being seen by them during 40 days, and speaking of the things pertaining to the kingdom of God. Now in Luke's account, in his account of the life of Jesus, he includes some details that Matthew doesn't, and not the least of which, he includes Jesus' ascension into heaven. He also includes what he's talking about here, this 40-day period just before that, after the resurrection, before the ascension, when Jesus spent time with and when he ministered to the disciples once again. And effectively, this was a time during which he was teaching them what he had already taught them. In Luke 24, it says, these are the words which I spoke to you while I was still with you, that all things must be fulfilled which are written in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms concerning me. Then it says that he opened their understanding that they might comprehend the scriptures. No doubt there were all kinds of other lessons that he needed to teach them before they could kind of launch out into this new ministry that he had for them. And in fact, there are at least 10 different times recorded in the Gospels when Jesus appeared to his disciples during this 40 days. And each one of these times, imagine what a great the way that it would have helped to strengthen their faith, right? Offering what Luke calls here the strongest possible proofs of his actual bodily resurrection. He was there with them. He's teaching them once again, it says here, about the kingdom of God. In the very same way that we saw him teach them these things back in all those parables, remember, in Matthew chapter 13. And of course, we know that for Jesus... His primary concern wasn't the kingdoms of the world, but his primary concern was this realm or this sphere within that where God was acknowledged as king. And the disciples still had so much to learn about the kingdom itself and about their role in it. And all of this, Luke says, was recorded in his earlier work. And it was a work that was also written, as this account is written, to this man, Theophilus, who we actually know very little about. And in fact, we don't know much more about Luke himself. Now, from the name Luke, we can gather that he was a Gentile. We know that he was a devoted companion, later of the Apostle Paul. And we're actually going to see in the narrative in this book, he changes from he to we, long about chapter 13. Paul tells us in Colossians that Luke was a physician. And as you read through the gospel according to Luke, you see there's lots of these sort of medical details that he includes about the miracles that he includes uh, of Jesus. Now this also tells us that Dr. Luke was most likely a slave. Because in that day, the position of a physician for most wealthy men and their families, was actually held by an educated servant. And we know also from Luke's writing style and his very exacting use of the Greek language, we know that Luke was an extremely intelligent man. And in fact, some scholars would still contend, after making a critical study of Luke's writings, that he was the greatest historian ever, either ancient or modern. Now, based on all of this, some students believe that this Theophilus, whose name, by the way, means lover of God, 
Lots of people believe that Theophilus was maybe Luke's former owner who following his own conversion to Christ kind of freed Luke to go and to travel and to minister with Paul and then to write and report back on what was going on. Others believe that Theophilus may have even been a, a sympathetic converted Roman official for whom Luke may have been preparing sort of a, a background brief, if you will, to be used in Paul's defense at the end there of his life. In the introduction to Luke, um, the Gospel of Luke, he addresses Theophilus with the title Most Excellent Theophilus. And this was typically a way to address people who held that kind of a high office. Now, there are still others who believe that there actually was no specific individual Theophilus, but that Luke is kind of using that name as sort of a code, if you will, and addressing this instead to all of those people who are lovers of God, all of those who are looking for more information about all of these important events. Now, honestly, this is kind of a minority view, although it's a lovely thought. But I think that what it does do for us is it highlights the fact that this book provides us with critical information as lovers of God that we otherwise would have absolutely no record of. Imagine if you turned in your Bible from the ending of the book of John right to the letter to the Romans. Right? You've just seen the ministry of Jesus ending and suddenly now you're reading about some guy named Paul who's writing to a group of followers of Jesus all the way over in Rome. So who in the world was Paul? And how in the world did the gospel get all the way from Jerusalem to Rome. And the account here in Acts, Luke provides for us the very first church history and actually the only inspired church history that exists. And we would be at a total loss without this book. And oftentimes we read the epistles and some of the things which we read seem not to make any sense and they're difficult to understand. And yet we look in the book of Acts and so often it'll give us the cultural context. It'll give us a little bit of background, like who were all these different churches that Paul is writing to? How in the world did they come to be? And Acts answers these as well as many other questions. Devotionally, I love to think of the book of Acts, it's this critical bridge between the life of Christ that's described in the Gospels and the Christ life that's written about in the epistles. Doctrinally, of course, it kind of it's that transitional link that bridges the gap between Judaism and Christianity or between that life under the law and life under grace. As we are watching in the book of Acts, we're watching the new covenant unfold and we're watching it really take hold. And all of that begins in this second account as Luke says here back in verse, verse 1, after his first account, look at verse 1, his first account was of all the things that Jesus began both to do and to teach. So in the very simplest sense, we can think about the book of Acts. The gospel accounts told the story of what Jesus began to do and to teach while he was here on earth in his physical human body. And the book of Acts picks up that very same story telling us what Jesus continued to do and to teach through the church 
which is his spiritual body now here on the earth. That's why it's called the book of Acts. Now, in most of your Bibles, it probably lists the kind of the longer, the more formal title, the Acts of the Apostles. Because as we're going to see, it's going to focus on the things that the apostles did during the first century. But what you need to understand, of course, is that the titles of these books weren't given by the original authors, nor are the titles of the books necessarily inspired by the Spirit. And so even this more descriptive title of the Acts of the Apostles isn't very accurate because really it only includes a few of the Acts of a few of the Apostles. We're going to see primarily Peter, and then we're going to see Paul. John is only mentioned, and none of anything that John ever said is actually recorded. James just gets one brief sentence in the whole book. So we probably should more accurately call this certain acts of certain apostles. Although what we're going to see, as we actually start to study it, the apostles really aren't even the focus because they aren't the ones actually who are doing the work. Rather, what we'll find is that this book is the story, and I think a much better title would actually be The Way That the Resurrected Risen Lord Jesus Worked From Heaven Through the Power of His Spirit to Accomplish His Work in the World Through His Apostles and Some Other People. So write that at the top of this book. And yet I'm sure, I have no doubt that they probably knew even back then that this title was way too long for Twitter and it was way too big to fit on your little Bible tabs there. So Acts it is. And yet whatever we call it, here's the point. Jesus is still doing these things today. He's still working through his people. He's still working through us and he's doing it to reach the world around us. The book of Acts is just the continuation of that gospel story. And folks, the, the, the story just keeps continuing all around us. You know, as we look around today, we are only beginning to discover the depth and the breadth of the church in communist China. You think about places like Sri Lanka and the Middle East and India, Indonesia, Brazil, Nigeria. There's parts of Europe, right, who are so steeped in secular humanism. And, of course, pockets of America, even in the midst of all of our materialism. And even in spite of that, all of these places are experiencing great revival, even today. And Jesus is still working. And he's still doing it the very same way. And he's doing it in a continued fulfillment of this promise that he had made first to the disciples. And we're going to see Luke refer to that next. And in fact, if you look in the last verses of Luke's gospel account, you would read that he told Theophilus that immediately prior to his ascension, that the Lord Jesus had promised the disciples that they would soon be baptized with the Holy Spirit. And now I love here the way in verse 4 of our text today, he starts off his new narrative by referring back to that compelling promise in the old one as a starting point. Look what it says in verse 4. It says, In being assembled together with them, he commanded them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which he said, You have heard from me. 
For John truly baptized with water, but you shall be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. So in order to accomplish all of these acts that they were going to need to accomplish as his followers, Jesus knew that they were going to need his help. And so now as he's continuing to to prepare them to continue the story, he knew that it would have to be in his power and not at all in theirs. And so the promise of the Father was this promise that the Holy Spirit, who is the third person of the Godhead, right, God himself, that the Holy Spirit would come and endow redeemed men and women with a divine heavenly power so that we could go and proclaim the gospel. You remember in the upper room in John chapter 16, Jesus told the disciples of the coming of someone he called the comforter. And he said, if I depart, I will send him to you. And when he has come, he will convict the world of sin and of righteousness and of judgment. And here what he's telling them is that he has nothing else for them to do right now other than to wait until the Holy Spirit comes. Because Jesus knew that they really could do nothing effective for the kingdom of God until the Spirit of God came to equip and to empower and to enable them. Isn't it so hard to wait around for something? And imagine the poor disciples. Here they are after 40 days with Jesus, with the resurrected, risen Christ. They're all jazzed up to get going. And what does Jesus say? Not quite yet, boys. And what we'll see is that these guys are going to become different guys once they're baptized with the Spirit because there's going to be a power and a focus and a a boldness and a determination from them. And we can't imagine reading the kind of things that we're going to be reading apart from this change, apart from this gifting of the Spirit, which I think is to say so often when the Lord says wait to us, it may very well be because he knows that we need to be just a little bit more prepared for what he has for us. And he knows that we need more of him. And this idea of being baptized, it simply means to be immersed or to be covered over completely by something. And so Jesus is saying, hey, even as John baptized in water, he says, you as my disciples are going to be immersed or are going to be covered over completely by and in the Holy Spirit. And within the church today, there is sadly so much confusion about the baptism in the Spirit. And people get hung up, and what happens is they miss out because they don't understand that there are three different relationships that Jesus talked about that a person can and should have with the Holy Spirit. First of all, he's with us before we're saved. He's the one that works to convict us of our need to be born again. Then he comes in us, that moment that we open our heart to the Savior. But then the Bible talks about the fact that he comes upon us when he empowers us for service. And it's this third beautiful relationship to which Jesus is referring here. 
you know, think about John's baptism was an outward baptism. It, it identified them as a people who had repentant hearts. But this baptism would be an inward baptism. And it would be the baptism that would equip them for service right here where Jesus had left off. Isn't it interesting Jesus said that the, the Spirit would come as they waited where? In Jerusalem, of all places, which certainly is not at all by accident. Now, ironically, the coming of the Spirit would take place in the very city where the Savior had been crucified. You know, doctrinally, the presence of the Spirit here would bear testimony to the fact that man had rejected the Son of God. Strategically, Jesus said that the spirit of truth would come to convict the world of sin and of righteousness and of judgment. And that was going to start right here in Jerusalem. But what I love most is that personally, imagine here are the disciples and they are going to receive the Holy Spirit in the very city where they themselves had forsaken the Lord and fled to save their own skins. They were going to be made strong and fearless in the very place where they had shown themselves to be weak and cowardly. Because what you find is that the baptism of the Spirit in a person's life can change everything. And what we so often find in our own lives is that once we've been empowered by and once we're operating under the control of the Spirit of God, we often find ourselves doing things that we never dreamed of doing. Or we find ourselves finding victory in the very places where we had once known only failure. And that might be geographically, it might be emotionally or relationally, it might be spiritually, it might just be in a personal sense. Because what you find with the baptism of the Spirit is that there is true experience of kingdom power and it's always for kingdom purposes. And that's just what we've seen promised in the scriptures, which is why I think, look at what the disciples ask in verse 6. It says, therefore, when they'd come together, they asked him, saying, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? They say, hey, are you finally going to establish your kingdom? Now, is this not a question that we've seen them ask many times before? And sometimes... They ask it in their ignorance, and yet it was actually especially relevant right now. Because in the disciples' minds, that outpouring of the Holy Spirit and the coming of the kingdom were very closely connected because the two were often connected by the Old Testament prophets. You see Isaiah and Ezekiel and Joel and, and Zechariah. So when Jesus tells the disciples of this soon coming spirit baptism, they immediately conclude that the restoration of the kingdom to Israel was very near at hand. And yet look at Jesus' response next, because I think it shows us that maybe they weren't as far off as some would say that they were. Because it says in verse 7 that he said to them, it is not for you to know times or seasons which the Father has put in his own authority. So you see that the disciples had the right idea, but they just had the wrong timing. And I think if their, if their view had been fundamentally incorrect, this would have been the time when Jesus would have corrected it. But the fact is that they were right, sort of. 
We've seen Jesus had taught them at length that, you know, Matthew chapter 19 about his physical return to the earth and about the establishing of his literal kingdom on the earth. And here, notice he doesn't rebuke them for not listening or even not understanding, but he just encourages them that the timing of all of these things wasn't for them to worry about. And what a great reminder, isn't it, for all of us? Because it shows, I think, that as well as we think we have God all figured out, (laughs) he may still be doing things a little bit differently than we anticipate. And that's okay. And we need to be open to that. And in fact, if you underline things in your Bible, I want you to underline the phrase there in verse 7, it is not for you to know. What makes me think that I need to know everything, right? The fact is, especially when dealing with the Lord, there are certain things that may just not be for me to know now. And honestly, so often it might be better because I don't know things. Think about it. It was better for Jesus not to outline his plan over the next 2,000 years to the disciples. It was better for the disciples not to know that the restoration of the kingdom to Israel that they hoped was coming so soon, better for them not to know that it wasn't going to come for at least two millennia. That would have probably discouraged them in the work that they had to do right then and there. And certainly it would have taken their focus off of the fact that the actual spiritual kingdom of God was already there with them. And I think it's a great reminder for, if we're honest, I think we would agree that sometimes too much information about the future can take our focus off of what God has for us to do right here in the present. Look at the way that Jesus brings them back with this powerful promise in verse eight. He says, look, it's not quite time yet for my earthly kingdom, but, verse eight, You shall receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you shall be witnesses to me in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. So though this natural kingdom that they wanted was going to be delayed for the future, the power that they needed for their ministry right then and there wasn't going to be delayed at all. And that they would very soon receive everything they needed with the coming of the Spirit. And notice that the natural natural result of receiving this power was going to be that they were going to become witnesses of Jesus all over the earth. And did you catch the fact that this really wasn't a command as much as Jesus is simply stating a fact? He says that when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, you what? You shall be witnesses of me. Those words shall be are in the indicative, right? Not the imperative. Jesus didn't command that they become witnesses. He didn't demand that they go out and do witnessing. He said you will be witnesses. And what Jesus is saying is that things are going to happen in a naturally supernatural way in and through you that will bear witness to those around you of my reality. 
And that word witness is such a key in this book. We're going to see it used 29 times in 28 chapters. And we know that a witness is simply somebody that tells what he or she has seen or heard. Right? If you're in a court of law on a witness stand, the judge is not interested in your opinions or your ideas or your conclusions. The only thing they want to hear is what you saw and what you know to be true. And the truth is that while some of God's people... Some of God's people in this room, as a matter of fact, some of God's people do have a specific calling and they have a unique equipping to be evangelists. But all of God's people, all of us, as we are baptized by the Spirit and as we're empowered and we're equipped then to be witnesses and to testify through our lives of the reality of Jesus. In Proverbs 14, it says that a true witness delivers souls. And this whole idea to me is such a freeing thought. It's simply that we do what we do and we simply be who we are, but we need to do it and be it under the influence and with the empowering of the Holy Spirit, right? Letting the the witness of Jesus radiate from our lives and allowing people to see that new nature of Jesus living inside of us and allowing them to see his hope that now lies within us, allowing them to see so often that hand of comfort that he has upon us, allowing them to see that work of restoration that he's doing in us and allowing them to witness that. And Jesus promises what? that it's going to spread everywhere. In fact, the the promise of the progress of the spread of the gospel from, he says, Jerusalem to Judea, Samaria, and then to the ends of the earth, this is a beautiful summary right here of the divine strategy for evangelizing the whole planet. And it also just happens to be a perfect outline for the book of Acts itself. Because Acts chapters 1 through 7 describe the gospel going out in Jerusalem. Acts 8 through 12 speaks about the gospel in Judea and Samaria. And then Acts chapter 13 through 28 tells us about the way that the gospel went out to the ends of the earth. And all of this incredibly happened in just about a 30-year period which again is such proof to the power, the power of the church coming completely, not from man, not from our abilities, not from our strategies, but from the Holy Spirit. We're about to witness the New Testament fulfillment of that Old Testament truth in Zechariah. The Lord says, not by might nor by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord of hosts. And as you read and as we study together this incredible story, we're going to see the way that God's people experienced these repeated fillings of the Spirit. Every time they encountered a new obstacle or more opportunity, we're going to see ordinary people doing these extraordinary things because the Spirit of God was at work through their lives. One author, I love the way he put this, he was talking about the expansion just from Jerusalem to Rome as recorded in this book, he said was a remarkable feat because he said that humanly speaking, Christianity had nothing going for it. It had no money, no proven leaders, no technological tools for propagating the gospel, and it faced enormous obstacles. It was utterly new, 
It taught truths that were incredible to the unregenerate world. It was the subject, it was subject to the most intense hatreds and persecutions. And yet, as a result of that, we see that the gospel expands, right? And the churches are established not through human strength, not through our best strategies, but really through our weakness and through opposition and through persecution. You think about demonic forces and worldly powers, authorities, governmental opposition, language and cultural barriers. We're going to see intense suffering and bloody persecution and unjust imprisonment, unbelief, internal strife, even shipwrecks and snakes. I know all of that was okay till we got to snakes, right? <laughs> all of these things we're going to see threaten to slow down the advance of the gospel, but all of it, instead of slowing the advance of the grace of Jesus, it, they just fuel it. And what's, I think, such a great encouragement as we consider all of the, think about all the, the hardships and the obstacles that we face even in our own lives personally. You think about that, the fact that none of those things can stand in the way of what the Lord wants to do in and through our lives. We think about the hard ground that we as a church geographically face here in our own Jerusalem or in our Judea or Samaria. Did you know that the Bay Area, according to Barna Research, continues to consistently rank right at the top of what they call the most post-Christian cities in the entire country? And in fact, we are number one outside of the Northeast. So what do we say to all of that, right? We say, praise the Lord, right? Bring it on. Bring it on, Lord, right? The ministry of the Holy Spirit's not a luxury. It's an absolute necessity. And it's powerful enough to meet even the most challenging areas. Consider these places that Jesus mentioned and think about what the disciples might have thought as he mentioned them. Jerusalem was the place that Jesus was executed at the word of an angry mob, Judea, we know, rejected his ministry. Samaria was regarded as just this wasteland of impure, hated half-breeds. And these Gentiles, right, who were there in the uttermost parts of the earth, they were viewed by the Jews of the day as nothing better than fuel for the fires of hell. But God wanted a witness to all of these places. And the Holy Spirit was going to empower these men to do that work in just the same way that he wants a witness here and he's going to provide us and empower us to do it right out of our insufficiency and our own weakness. Verse 9, it says that when he'd spoken these things and while they watched, he was taken up and a cloud received him out of their sight. And while they looked steadfastly toward heaven as he went up, behold, two men stood by them in white apparel, who also said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand gazing up into heaven? This same Jesus, who was taken up from you into heaven, will so come in like manner as you saw him go into heaven. I love the way the gospel, I mean, the, the Bible writers, this is such a spectacular event and look at the way it's described so simply and so quietly. 
understand the ascension of the Lord Jesus Christ is an important and it's a significant miracle in his ministry. And notice the way here that Luke records it again here and he connects it concretely with the promise of the Father. Understand that if Jesus hadn't returned to the Father, the Bible says that he couldn't send that promised gift of the Spirit. Nor could he have begun any of the new ministries that he's currently doing on our behalf. The Bible says that in heaven even now, Jesus is our interceding high priest. That he's giving us grace that we need for life and for service. The Bible says that he's our advocate before the Father. right, Forgiving us of our sins when we confess them to him. The Bible says that he's the exalted, glorified head of the church and that even now he's working here with his people helping us to accomplish the things that he wants accomplished. And it was so important, I think, for the disciples to witness this kind of a supernatural, significant event the way that that Luke describes it. In theory, couldn't Jesus have certainly simply vanished into heaven into the presence of the Father in sort of a more secret kind of a way. And yet, by ascending here so majestically, received up into what many believe is no less than that Shekinah glory of God, that visible manifestation of the presence of God amongst his people, Jesus wanted his followers to understand that this time he was gone for good. Understand, for the past 40 days, he's been kind of popping in and out, right? Appearing, reappearing, disappearing, you know, during all that time. But this was a visual confirmation that that continuing work of Jesus was now being placed in the hands of the disciples and that they could now count on the coming of the Spirit. Remember, he had told them that it's to your advantage that I go away He says, if I do not go away, then the helper will not come to you. But if I depart, what does he say? I will send him to you. Now, we don't know, of course, if this thought was in their minds. Luke just tells us there in verse 10 that they stood staring steadfastly into the sky. How could they not, right? They were probably a little bit sorrowful. Maybe they were worshiping. Maybe it was just the kind of the awe and wonder of the moment. I suspect it was probably a mixture of all of those things. And yet I think primarily they were probably sorrowful. They knew that this was the last time they were going to see him. And so I love the way that God's so faithful to send these ministering angels. And they come with this word of comfort that this Jesus who just ascended would come back. But this time he wouldn't come in secret He would come in a visible, spectacular, supernatural way, just the way he had left. We read through Matthew 24 about his second coming when he comes in power and in glory to set up that kingdom here on the earth. So here it's this glorified Jesus who went up to heaven and this very same glorified Jesus. That same Jesus of love and of grace and of goodness and of care who's seated there right now at the right hand of the Father. That same Jesus will return again in the same spectacular way and he'll return to that very same place on the Mount of Olives. Zechariah chapter 14 it says that his feet 
shall stand in that day upon the Mount of Olives, which is before Jerusalem on the east. And the Mount of Olives shall cleave in the midst thereof towards the east and towards the west. So it's going to split in half. And there shall be a very great valley, and half of the mountain shall remove toward the north, and half of it toward the south. Imagine it. And yet until that glorious day, I think that the words here of the angels, not only do they bring comfort to the disciples, but they're a word of exhortation to the disciples and to us that we need to be about the business of our Lord until he comes back. We need to be confident that Jesus is coming again and that he can come again at any time. And as we finish up this morning, as we're starting off this brand new book, I have to say I am so excited because the book of Acts, in a lot of ways, is like a roller coaster ride. There's, a, there's this pulse to it and there's a sense that it's the Lord Jesus through his spirit that's driving all of the things that we're going to read about. There's an excitement that comes in every single chapter. And yet I really believe that the, the most exciting chapter, the most exciting verse in this book is actually the final verses of the final chapter. In Acts 28, we have this description Spoiler alert, I'm jumping ahead, right? This description, Paul has finally arrived in Rome. He's awaiting his trial before Caesar. It says that Paul dwelt two whole years in his own rented house. He received all those who came to him, preaching the kingdom of God and teaching the things which concern the Lord Jesus Christ with all confidence, no one forbidding him. And that's it. That's the end. Which really, from a literary perspective, (laughs) isn't much of an ending, is it? But it isn't much of an ending because it's really only just the beginning. And under the inspiration of the Spirit, there is no end to the story. Because the story of the church is what continues this story on and on through the centuries and right up to and including the way that the Lord is using each one of us each and every single day. As we're trusting in Jesus, as we're relying on the power of the Spirit, we're looking for the guidance of the Father, we can count on the fact that the Word of God will continue to spread in spite of opposition and in spite of our weakness. The Word of God is going to spread in spite of us. Amen? And it's going to continue to change countless lives to the glory of God in just the same way that he has changed and in the same way that he continues to change each and every one of our lives. Amen? Amen. Father, we thank you, Lord, for your word, and we thank you as we begin this exciting book, Lord, that tells of this power that's available to us from heaven. Lord, we confess that we want more of it. Father, we confess that we have a need, Lord, to be empowered by you to accomplish the things that you would have us to accomplish, Lord. Simply live out our lives in a way that bears witness to your power and to the restorative work of your son, Jesus Christ. And so, Lord, we do pray, each one of us, for more of your spirit. Lord, we pray that you would fill us afresh, Lord. We pray that you would baptize each one of us In your spirit, Lord, cover us over completely. Immerse us, Lord, in your spirit. 
And Father, we pray that you would give us the faith to trust and to believe that as we've asked, Lord, that you will deliver. Pray that you would help us, Lord, to yield control of our lives over to you and to your spirit. Father, we look forward to this study, Lord. We look forward, more importantly, to the things that you want to do in and through us, Lord, as individuals and as a body of believers who are united in the baptism of the Spirit. We thank you and we praise you, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen.